This is Nicole Doily, and welcome to Let's Talk Conversations on Race. Here, we discuss various topics on race, hoping to spark conversation and foster greater understanding. Remember to subscribe to Let's Talk on your favorite podcast platform, and go ahead and rate and review. Now, let's talk. I was doing a study about slavery and racism and how Africans that have never come here and Africans that were enslaved have a DNA shift. That slavery shifted our DNA. And it's like, to me, that was just so, first of all, it was so emotional. But second of all, it's just true when you see the things that we are having to fight and even the traumas that we are still facing based on 400 years of trauma. On our last episode, we talked about raising Black sons. And today we're going to be talking about raising Black daughters. Now, all parents have challenges, and there are additional challenges to raising Black kids in a racialized culture. Challenges and joys, honestly. And we wanted to talk about some of those challenges and joys, and also to encourage parents of Black kids. And joining us today is Pastor Jennifer Bibb, who is an advocate for wellness in every way. She lives this out as a pastor, counselor, and a coach. She is the wife of Pastor Timothy Bibb and the mother of three fun and real, as in not plastic, as she says, <laughs> children. And together, they are part of the pastoral team at Glory House International. She is also passionate about justice and bringing Christian perspectives and workable solutions to our culture. And she is the co-author of 100 Facts Every Black Youth Should Know. And she has a wellness coaching practice and is accepting new clients. So welcome, Pastor Jen. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so it's so great to have you. It was a it was a honor to have your husband last time, and it's a double honor having you this time. <laughs> yes, I appreciate you so much for inviting me on. So, Pastor Jen, I you know I read your bio, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. What your your nine to five job is, and you know I read about your business being a wellness coach, but also any other jobs and your kids and stuff like that? Well, I um, would love to tell you a little bit about myself. So I, Tim and I have been married for 20 years. We celebrated our 20th anniversary just this past January. Mm. We have three children, Timothy II, who is 18. He's getting ready to graduate from high school. London, who is 15. She is a freshman in high school and Judah who is nine and he's in the third grade. Mm. Um, Yeah. He's our, like, he came at the perfect time, but also he was just like the last of the Mohicans, you know, like, (laughs) like, okay, buddy. I'm done. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I work at the United Way during the day. I work for the systems integration project and we are doing, I very specifically in doing some heavy work with community engagement for the transforming of the DHS systems. And so it's been um, exciting work. It's getting kind of heavy for a while. It was so slow going. And now we're like dead in the middle of just like having, being able to talk to the employees, being able to hear the hearts of the people. And it's been heavy, but 
the care of the workers and the employees, the care that they have for the community is just so powerful. And to hear their stories is really impactful. You know, what we hear or what we think we know about DHS systems and its workers, and then what we find out that is true is that there are so many people that passionately give their life over to this service. Mm. And I think that's just beautiful. Yeah. So, so for anybody who doesn't know, what exactly is DHS? Ah, the Department of Human Services. Okay. And what does that oversee? So any of the programs that, that deal with the welfare systems, Mm. the child and family services, um, child protective services, any temporary assistance that's needed, Medicaid, all of that. Wow, that's that's deep. I am sure you're a tremendous asset in that arena. That's that's amazing. So, um, like like I said, we had your husband last time, and he talked about some of the challenges raising black sons. And I was wondering if you could tell us, you have a black daughter, mm-hmm. so if you could tell us some of the challenges of raising a black daughter. Yeah. So I think that the challenges are trying to raise a strong, empowered Black woman in the throes of a society that tries its best to make us feel weak and powerless Mm. and to throw us into these stereotypical, as we're just trying to just fight against this racialized world and let my baby know, hey, you're important. You matter. Your voice matters. It should be heard. Every time you step into a room, you belong there. Mm. My children go to a predominantly white Christian school. This is their first time being in a private school sector. Mm. And to, to be honest with you, I feel like they get a really good book education, but I'm not sure if the trade-off has been the best. You know, like I'm I'm still trying to decide if I made the right decision mm. to send them to this school where I know they will get some of the best educational instruction. However, the trade-offs in certain ways have just been horrendous, to be honest. Mm. Could you tell us what some of those are? So I've had to go up to the school, let's see, twice this year, a couple of times last year, about someone passing, well, someone's open use of the N-word, a young woman passing my daughter, and just in passing saying, oh, I would never go to a party where there is a Black person Mm. now. My daughter, who's never been in a confrontation, who's never been in a fight, now is upset, Mm -hmm. throwing her book bag down on the ground and getting in this girl's face, screaming to where she calls me in the middle of the day like, Mom, I might hit her. (laughs) Right. And so I'm having to remind Part of me, no lies, like, yeah, do it, you know? And then there's the other part that's like, wait. (laughs) Right. It's not really the answer, even if she does deserve it. But now I have to go to the school. I have to meet with all the administration. And and really, they weren't blaming my daughter for anything, but they wanted to assure me of how serious they were taking these offenses. Yet, 
they really did nothing to address it outside of having my daughter and this young lady meet and talk it over. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where is the hard stance against racism? Yeah. Where are the hard stances? You know, when when Justice Katanji Brown came in office, when um, Kamala Harris was voted in, mm-hmm. we had to go back to the school to say, these sideline comments coming from these children, which we know are coming from their parents, which we know this is unacceptable. This is a joyous time for black women and even men across the country. And here you guys are pouring just salt Uh in places where it should be joyous. Yeah. Yeah. Calling her evil, call, you know, just, oh, I mean, the comments were so bad that it's like, yeah. I, so that's been the trade-off. Like, yo, you're going to get this great book education that even my son is like, my oldest son, he's like, mom, I have never received this type of instruction before where a teacher really takes her time with me. Whoa. But yet, then we had to go fight the school for the class president who's saying the N-word and is turning around, you know, to try to apologize. And everybody's like, oh, he was just really deeply sorry. Like, it's not good enough. His Mm -hmm. deep sorrow is just not good enough for me. Um, So I've spoken a lot about the the myth of the dangerous Black man and how this impacts us raising Black boys. We have to prepare our sons for the fact that, that some will look at them suspiciously just because they're Black and that could happen with black women too. And it does happen with black women too, but there's, there's this other myth that's more prevalent about black women, which is that we are hypersexualized. So you talked about these tropes in, you know, in movies of old, we had this sort of heavy set black mammy. And then, so that was one kind of black woman. And then the super sexy black seductress, you know, leading black and white men astray and then there's this third trope um, popularized by President Reagan, the uh, the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. So you know it's like it's like we're one of these three things, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, how have you helped your daughter to deal with these kind of stereotypes and to know that she is none of those things? Yeah, the best that I can really say is it's a it's a journey. Like as we get into it, it's no way to truly prepare. It's no real way to prepare your children for the world to hate them. You know, there's just really no way to prepare them for that. Yeah. There's the only thing that you can do is give them an immense amount of love and confidence on my end. You know, so, so my journey here, my job for you is to make you feel empowered to know that you are nothing that this world might say you are. Uh-huh. So it's like a giving her a knowledge and communicating in areas where, because she's really just now coming into this idea that people might hypersexualize her. Uh-huh. As she's just trying, you know, she's just coming into, you know, puberty and body uh-huh. shape. And what uh-huh. does it mean to have men look at me in a way that makes me uncomfortable? Uh-huh. Because while the world has tried to hypersexualize Black women, yet they haven't done the job to protect them from men's 
from men's gaze and from men that actually do sexualize them. Yes. Yes. So then as I'm, I come from a very uber religious background where it's like, look, you can't even, you know, you can't wear pants. You can't wear makeup. You can't do anything that not only doesn't please God, but you can't make cause your brother to sin. So I'm so sensitive to make sure that she doesn't feel that weight on her. Like when we talk about modesty, we talk about modesty from the heart, not from attire. Uh-huh. And what does it mean to have a modest heart? And what does it mean to be to try to please God inwardly versus being so focused on what your outward look is uh-huh. while I still try to make sure she knows like your body is beautiful. I want you to celebrate your curves. I want you to know that you are just right, just the way God has created you. Uh-huh. Yet be honest about a way that she could be perceived in a way that I don't want her to be perceived. Yeah. It's like walking a fine line of, yes, you know, I want you to feel like your body is yours, yet it's a temple. It should be celebrated, yet people will try to weaponize it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you at all um, watch what she's watching in terms of... Um, you know, whether it's music videos of Black women, um, do you talk her through some of those things? Yes. And, you know, the more that it's like I can't keep up, you know, because like the more that TikTok and Snapchat, like they'll see stuff before I see it, you know, and it's like, uh-huh. okay, while Judah, I have a big control over what he views sometimes for them because I've allowed them on these sites and I have been very clear with what I expect for their eye gaze, there are still things that they catch before I catch it. Of course. You know, and so it's like, okay, when we've seen, um, you know, I'm not a fan of Cardi B. I'm not a fan of Meg Thee Stallion. And why? Because I don't feel like they celebrate being feminine, black empowered women, mm-hmm. the way I feel should be celebrated. I'm not hating on them and, you know, what they do. However, it's not something I want my daughter to participate in. Right. right. So I don't support their music. However, I do have one of my son, you know, my, well, my oldest, obviously he's 18 and he's like, ma, I love Cardi's music. It's like, no, <laughs> like, no. So <laughs> well, you're 18 over here with Cardi London, 15. No, you're not allowed. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's so funny. You know, there's, there, there are just as many, you know, white women singers who dress that way and move that way, but somehow I don't think they're pigeonholed as rapidly as we are. Correct. Because I mean, think about it, Madonna, Lady Gaga. I mean, these women were lewd, more lewd or as lewd, you know, but, and I don't want London listening to them either. You know, like we're not, we're not on the, you know, we came up with the Madonna, though she was eighties craze, you know what I mean? So it's like, but I think that black women are, 
definitely hypersexualized and pigeonholed for sure in a way that white women are not. I mean, even think about it. Kim Kardashian is celebrated for being this, you know, uh, for being who she is versus being the sex tape releasing. That's what got her famous. And I'm sorry. We just don't, you know, our our former first lady was on the cover of Playboy here. Give me a break. Yes. Right. Yep. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and yet they're not pigeonholed and labeled as, you know, seductresses leading men astray. <laughs> right. Look, she became classy. They literally said bringing classy back to the White House. And I was like, where? Right. Please. Yep. Yep. And that's another way that I help my children fight back stereotypes because it's like truth will always set things free. And the Mm -hmm. truth is this woman was on the cover of a Playboy magazine. Mm -hmm. Michelle Obama came from an Ivy League school. Yes. Yes. And Michelle would never. Right. (laughs) Absolutely not. Yeah, so so true. Yeah, I was good. That, so you led to my next question. You know, and, and we sort of already talked about it, but you know, so on the one hand, you've got this sort of hypersexualized myth, but on the other hand, white women are upheld as the standard of beauty. You know, long silky hair and narrow hips and you know, angular jaws, square jaws, and that sort of upheld as the standard of beauty. So on the so on the one hand, we're hypersexualized, but on the other hand, we're told that white women are are really more beautiful and the closer you are to white, meaning the lighter skinned that you are. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we saw that exactly with, with Melania Trump, you know, she was considered elegant and beautiful. And then there were these horrible caricatures of Michelle Obama looking like an ape. Mm -hmm. And I am like, like you said, say what, you know, (laughs) painful to see them. So, right. So painful. So you talked a little bit about it, but how do you help your daughter to know that she is beautiful, even if she doesn't have these European features? Honestly, I've just always tried to help her see her beauty, like in every way. We cannot compete with other women. We cannot compete with other looks. We can only celebrate the beauty that we actually obtain, you know? And so... And then another truth bomb. I'm like, baby girl, everybody is right now dying for full lips. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know? um, And butt implants. (laughs) Okay. You know, people are doing these BBLs and all this stuff Mm -hmm. to get what they don't naturally have. Mm -hmm. So that's another just source of truth and conversation that can shed light that the truth is, even if this was the standard of beauty, People are literally taking what black women get naturally yeah. and, and, and trying to obtain it. Yeah. And so far, um, you know, again, she goes to a predominantly white school. So she has to fight these ideas. Like there was a young man who's like, I don't, and he's a black young man who has been adopted into a white family who has not helped him celebrate his blackness. Mm. And so because of that, though, he has openly made comments that he does not like He's not attracted to black women. Well, and so now my daughter, one of the things that I love about her, and I know that we'll talk about it later, but she's a justice fighter and seeker. And so she was like, do you understand what you're saying? Are you saying that you don't love yourself? 
Mm. Have you looked in the mirror recently? You know, and it was like, yeah, London, you know, <laughs> <Get him. laughs> yes, tell him about himself. <laughs> While every female, I don't care, honestly, skin color deals with a certain level of insecurity. Now it's like you have to compound these levels of insecurity with racism. So yeah. it's like, as I'm trying to fight the natural insecurity that you might have within yourself, I'm then having to fight these skin color insecurities, you know? Yeah. And so I try to be really clear with London and even asking her a lot of questions, making sure we have clear communication between each other so that I can know what she's thinking, what she's feeling. Where's your heart at? How do you see yourself? Because I don't think Number one, no one ever asked me when I was younger those questions. And number two, I think it's the only way to fight insecurity. Right. Is yeah. to keep giving security, yeah. you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I was t telling somebody um, growing up, there there were beautiful black women in the media, but there weren't a lot. It was, right. so, you know, I'm, I'm older than you. I won't say how much, but I am older than you. So, so when I was, you know, coming of age, it was Charlie's Angels, you know, that was the Farrah Fawcett, all that, you know, those women in the 70s. And there were, like I said, there were some black women, but but not a lot. Now there's there's so many more. So many. But I, I often wish that that my parents had, and I love my parents, you know, they were amazing people, but I, I often wish that they had just thrown some magazines around. My grandparents had jet magazines laying around and I looked at those when we were at their house, but just put beautiful black women in front of my eyes to sort of offset what I was seeing on TV all the time. Uh, yeah. Just to help, you know, and all different kinds of beautiful black women, you know, light skinned, dark skinned, whatever. I um, come from a very color struck family where um, my, I think my mom is probably your complexion, but was the darkest of, you know, the family for a long time, you know? And so then, but one thing that my mom did, if we're going to talk about color, like for some, she's like very attracted to very dark skinned men. Right. So she made sure she married one. <laughs> so, um, then one of the things that she did though, was from the time that I was little, I don't ever remember like all my baby dolls purposefully. She made sure they were all beautiful, different skin color, black babies though, you know, like mm -hmm. all my cabbage patch dolls. Mm -hmm. If I got a Barbie, she made sure Barbie had brown skin. Like this is you to celebrate every part of you in that way. Yeah. And so that is something, you know, me and my mom have other issues, but that was something that I carried on. Like she, one Christmas, she couldn't find a black baby doll. And I will never, I was a Cabbage Patch kid baby. So mm -hmm. I got Millicent. Millicent had a red hair. And my mom said, Millie is mixed. You know? <laughs> 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 That's funny. <laughs> and so I say that to say, like, my um, my grandfather did, he traveled the world. So he bought all kinds of artifacts back from Africa and just different places. Mm. And so I never felt not beautiful for being 
black, my insecurities came from other sources, you know? And so one thing that I wanted to make sure I gave my daughter was, hey, your black is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And in every way, I want to make sure from books to, you know, to to your dolls that you play with, to um, the things that you bring into the house, especially as like, you know, she's growing up in the age of like black girl magic and natural hair. You know, we did not grow up with natural hair as something to be celebrated. Nope. (laughs) The way she is, you know, and so I have made sure, you know, she's never had a relaxer in her hair. She, you know, she knows how to do all her little puff styles, you know, and she knows how to do it beautifully. And I've made sure that her hair was well maintained and loved. And to me, I think that's a joy to be able to watch that transformation, because, of course, I'm an 80s, 90s kid who we all got our hair permed, you know? Yes, yes. You you know, we all felt like you had to walk that straight and narrow um, in a way that I don't feel like Black women have to embrace right now. We do fight still with this, you know, Brazilian hair. And we, you know, that's another thing that either, you know, as you try to celebrate every way a Black woman is to be celebrated, hair is one of those touchy subjects that it's like, okay, well, whether you want weave that's 13 feet or kinky hair, you know, that's 4C, it's all beautiful. Whether you bought it or whether it came out of your whatever, you know? Yeah. I And there's, there's just so much being um, a friend of ours just published a a children's book about um, hair and just teaching his daughter that her hair is beautiful. And, you know, I'm thinking that this is something that's fading. I'm hoping that it is, but that sense of good hair and bad hair, mm-hmm. you know, even in, even in black families, mm-hmm. even, even in our communities, there could be three different kids with three different skin tones and the lighter one is the beautiful one. Mm-hmm. And the darker one could be told to not stay in the sun too long. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you don't have good hair like your sister, you know. So there's this thing called colorism where, mm-hmm. like, you know, like I said, the lighter, the closer you are to white, the more beautiful you're considered. And I, I feel like that is, well, let me, let me say this. I thought <laughs> that that was becoming a thing of the past But then um, my husband and younger son went to Washington, D.C., and they went to the African-American Museum. And one of the displays was of skin lightening cream. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is left. This was from the 50s or something. He said, no, the the, the date under it was 2016. (laughs) The skin lightening cream and it was it was for sale in Africa, India and and the U.S., Yes. And he's Jamaican. And he said, oh, yeah, you could buy it in Jamaica, too. Yes. So talk about that a little bit about colorism. I think that colorism is the hardest thing for us to fight in the community amongst Mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how much you are celebrated outwardly for being black and beautiful, when you don't feel accepted from your other black brothers and sisters just based on the color of your skin it's just really hard Mm -hmm. now mind you we kind of sort of sit in the middle of that right where it's like your brown skin versus darker or lighter you just kind of sit in the middle so there's not a lot of i'm not uber light i'm not uber dark there's not a lot to uh fight about right 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 (laughs) and so i have to 
be mindful to teach London, though, not to join in a fight against if it's better to be lighter or if it's better to be darker or if it's not as good to be darker, to Mm -hmm. see past what does your shade define you. It just can't, you know, like your, your shade cannot define your beauty, but that is, I mean, especially when you're dealing with, um, women as we're trying to come into ourselves in young ages to be accepted by men, you know, the opposite sex as you're trying to date, as you're trying to do all these things. Well, man, mm-hmm. it is, it's a hard stigma to fight. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer really, to be honest with you, outside of just saying, as I teach my daughter that she is beautiful, her black is beautiful, period. Yes. Yes. And the right man will, will think that as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. So good. So true. We have ways that we have been, uh, one writer called it psychologically tattooed. Yes. So ways that we have been psychologically tattooed to unlearn ourselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was doing a study about slavery and racism and how, Africans that have never come here and Africans that were enslaved have a DNA shift Mm. that slavery shifted our DNA. Mm. And it's like, to me, that was just so, first of all, it was so emotional, (laughs) but second of all, it's just true when you see the things that we are having to fight and even the traumas, that we are still facing based on 400 years of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. The things that we're still fighting, the things that we're trying to overcome and recover. And colorism is one of those things that started to decide what treatment you're going to get from your oppressor today. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The, the house slaves versus the field slaves. Yes. Yes. And so often the house slaves were the children of the master. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they got preferential treatment and that sowed so much division. So um, much division. And, and it's still in the black community today. Yep. Yeah. Now we, we talked about these tropes, different stereotypes and another stereotype that could be perceived as a, kind of positive stereotype, but it's also leads to bondage, <laughs> mm-hmm. is the, the strong Black woman trope, you know, with, that no matter what, we could handle anything and with a smile on our face and forgiveness. And, and so there's this sort of expectation that Black women are going to be so strong. And, um, you know, I've come up against this, you know, just people just sort of pouring out. I, I mean, I don't mind, obviously, when a, when a friend pours out their hearts to me and hopefully I'll have something to encourage them. But I, I found myself just sort of being the receptacle to all these people's troubles. And we weren't even good friends. Right. But they were expecting me to bear all these burdens. And I anyway, and it was not reciprocated. It was a one way street. Um, anyway, so. How can you teach your daughter to be strong, but also strong in a healthy way where it's not this burden? So funny story, like this is a true for her. She is always the one who gets the friends who have the most needs and they pour out their heart to her. Mm -hmm. And we have had to have really serious conversations like London, you are not a counselor. Mommy is, but you are not, (laughs) you know? And so you cannot like 
you have to have a, a serious no in your spirit not to be able to carry on certain relationships. Like you have to know how to put a stop to certain things. You have to be able to steer conversation away so that you're not carrying the burdens of people and then trying to teach her even a healthy outlet for when people do bring you this type of, you know, heavy burdens. Mm -hmm. So one, how to have a strong no in your spirit. Like, you know what? I'm sorry, but I just, (laughs) I got it today, you know? To how to care and have empathy without also being um, an empath. You know, you can have empathy without now turning into an empath to where you're carrying around everybody's trauma. Right. And, and that comes through conversation, learning how to give her proper prayers, proper outlets. And then three is just helping her have emotions. Like I was not allowed to be emotional. I come from a, my background is a bit abusive. So it was, you going to fight today? Cause that's what we're doing. We're not crying. We're fighting. Mm. You might feel like crying. And if you do go do that somewhere else, but we're, we're going to fight at this point, you know? Yeah. And so She's very emotional, more than I was ever allowed to be. So and I have a really good therapist friend of mine that was like, Jen, teenage girls are like, if you would almost diagnose them as multiple personality disorder, <laughs> but that's not the diagnosis. It's just them working through the hormones. And so it's <laughs> thank you for that. You know, like it really helped me kind of calm down because there were moments of me as I'm trying to raise my daughter to be healthy, to be empowered, to be self-sufficient, to be, you know, all these things while trying to fight back my own, like, all I know is fight or flight here, you know, like, and fight, not even flight. All I know is fight here. Yeah. You know, we take all of our emotions, we bottle them up and then we fight. Yeah. And so as I'm trying to not teach her that, I was struggling with the sense of emotion that she brought to the table. And so the idea of black women is strong is like, I'm trying to make sure I don't pass that on to her. Like you are capable of being emotional and your tears are fine in their rightful places, because there's a difference between being emotional and emotionally manipulative. Right. So even as strong black women, as that, as you're trying to carry that on, it's like, how do you make sure you don't manipulate people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure you're emotional, but not manipulative? And so we're trying to just give her that as I'm trying to deal with her on every level, because 15 is like, (laughs) I don't know, it's, it's a tough, honestly, it's a, I feel like she's been really a bit more emotional in these last 14, 15 than ever 12 and 13. So it's like a journey, you know, like, I feel like I'm waking up like, okay, where are we going today? (laughs) Yes. I love, I'm laughing that because, you know, I, I don't have girls. I just have two sons and um, yeah, my oldest is 14 and I know he's a boy and stuff, but there's hormones going on there too. And same thing, just moody and one minute, one way, another minute. I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, so I, I hear you in terms of who are we today? Yes. <laughs> and how can we all just maintain? And I think I was on a podcast speaking about mental health last year. And I, I really feel like this is an honest assessment that we are actually the first generation of black people here in this country that can fully deal with our mental health. 
Mm. that can fully deal with what is what does therapy look like and it's okay to go mm. well, it's okay to have emotions it's okay to cry it's okay to use something outside of anger or fear you know and so as i'm i'm trying to make sure i give that to my children mm-hmm. and for myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know my childhood lended itself to a lot of trauma so it's like okay jen you need counseling so i went and got a therapist, you know, like, okay, let me make sure that I deal with my trauma so that I don't pass on generational cycles to my children. We're trying to break stuff here. We're not trying to take it on. Right. Yes, totally. Yeah. That's so profound. What you said, uh, the first generation, I've thought similar things because the previous generations, I mean, even still a lot of insurance doesn't cover therapy, right? There still can be a, a financial burden, but, you know, money aside, you know, just this sort of, you can't sit in a room and bare your soul because you don't, right. know, you don't know who to trust and right. just keeping the cards close to your chest. Right. It's a very guarded persona. Right. Um, yeah. So just being able to relax and breathe and, you know, hopefully have insurance that will pay for some sessions. Yes. Yeah. It's so important. So we touched on this a little bit before too, but how important is it for your daughter to see people like Kamala Harris and Kataji Brown Jackson and Stacey, Stacey Abrams and Michelle Obama and the astronaut Jessica Watkins? You know, how much do you make sure that she knows these people and put them in front of her face? And how important is it for her to see this kind of representation? Man, it is so important. And I think more than ever, it's been really beautiful that I don't have to try so hard to put them in their face. They are there. You know, Michelle Obama is there. Yeah. Katanji Brown Jackson is there. Kamala Harris is there. And she was alive to witness, you know, seeing the, you know, well, she was kind of young for Obama to be the first black president in office, but she was Still, you know, I made sure that all the elections where there have been black men and women on it, that she was in the room watching with me, you know, (laughs) even Katanji Brown, I struggled to watch it. Her questioning, it was so hard for me. It was so triggering to see the way she was treated. So in certain ways, I'm like, okay, not yet, London. (laughs) Not yet. Right, right. Just the good parts. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And just in every way, I try to make sure that she's in front of strong Black representation. And I always have since she was been little, you know, as far as in every way that I could, like I said, from books to baby dolls to to whatever. And I feel like it's even that much more important because she goes to this predominantly white school. This is why we wrote 100 Black Facts that every Black teen should know, so that our children would feel celebrated for their Blackness. Yeah. Yes. One of the hardest lessons for me to learn as a parent was that the school system's way of teaching our children about slavery did not come from a place that they wanted to, uh, they had no empathy for it. Mm. They have no way to really show Black children in any way the trauma, they have no way to deal with the trauma of what segregation, but what slavery and segregation did to us as a people. Mm -hmm. So they don't teach it very well, Mm -hmm. you know, and they try to teach them these ideas of good slaves and, you know, just outright lies. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so with my first two children, because Judah has not had slavery lessons yet, and I've been very adamant with this school that he will not learn 
from a white teacher anything about shadow slavery. Mm. And I just, I'm just, I'm, that's just where I draw the line Mm. because with my older two, when they learned it in second grade and third grade, I had so many hard conversations with my young babies and tears and crying that it just left me like, I have to do something. Uh Me and my husband both, like we have to do something. We have to be able to teach our children. They are a source and their history is from strength, not Uh from trauma. Uh And so when I see all these black powerful figures coming into play, it's like, I want you to know that this is your story, mm-hmm. not not shadow slavery's trauma. Mm-hmm. And I need you to know the truth. Those that was traumatic. Mm-hmm. That was savage. Yes, yes. It's 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 the imbalance of teaching black trauma without black excellence. Yes. And also teaching black trauma from a position of never having deeply known a black person and never really, like you said, feeling empathy about it. So teaching it like it's just like teaching about the, the, the law of gravity. Right. It just did a very kind of stoic, unfeeling way and it's because I think so many teachers are coming at this for the first time in the classroom. Like they haven't read the books. They haven't watched the movies. They haven't had the lunches over uh, time over lunch with a black friend. This is their first, like sticking a toe in the waters of racial pain. And they don't know how to navigate. They've never navigated it before. And now they're in front of a classroom navigating it. You're right. And this country has been okay with human life being a means to an end. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute. At what point has it ever been okay to sacrifice human life unless you dehumanize it? Right. You have to dehumanize it first. Yes. And so we've been dehumanized in a way that people just look over it. Well, our forefathers and it's like, no, 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 no. Right. I'm going to need you to put the human back in humanity that some truth on that, put some empathy on that and teach that as the savage nature upon which it was. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm, of course we have to teach kids in school. Teachers have to teach them about the Holocaust. My son is reading, my younger son is reading the boy in the striped pajamas and he, Mm -hmm. you know, just comes home sad talking about it. And of course this is part of history the U.S. fought in that war, so of course they have to learn it. But I always feel like that history is allowed to be heavy. Right. As slavery and the hundred years following emancipation is not allowed to be heavy. It's not allowed to be weighty. And I, I have a hunch that it's because this was an evil over across the Atlantic, not on our own shores. Right. I don't, I'm not sure, but I, I have a hunch that that's what it is. For um, sure. The hypocrisy of us going to fight, you know, yes. um, to free like, the Nazi, you know, to free the uh, 
the Jews from the Nazis, but then literally holding a war to hold on to our slaves here is like, come on, really, America? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like, Yes. Let's face some reality here. But I think it's so much easier to look from afar and say, oh, I can't believe they did that. But to try to dumb it down or, you know, to try to be to act as though we would never do that here. Like, hey, there is I was in my car today. It was just a thought that hit me. And I'm like, you know, and I think maybe it was because me and my husband were talking about his podcast where it's like black men are like dangerous. Right. And it's like, we don't even have documentation that shows on paper a hundred years of black violence caused by black men. Mm -hmm. We have documented history of 400 years of violence caused by savage men who oppressed and dehumanized people. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The irony and the hypocrisy of that. Mm -hmm. So, so end this and finish this out on a, on a lighter, happier note, you know, I'm sorry. I get passionate about racism. Oh, me, too. Me, me too. We, we need, to, we need to talk more because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're kindred spirits in this regard. Yeah. We talked about these challenges of raising a black daughter. We'll talk about some of the joys of raising a, a young black woman. Oh man. My daughter is in an age where black women are celebrated in a lot of ways, you know, lover or hater, Beyonce is doing amazing things out here and making history, you know, from Michelle Obama to Kamala Harris to Katanji Brown to Stacey Abrams. Like these are women that are making power moves in history to Amanda Gorman. I mean, and my daughter is like in the, she is right here growing up with that. Mm. She is, she is a joy. She is a powerhouse who has learned how to have her voice and use it. Mm-hmm. I have done, I know we've kind of touched on racial things, but back home, I headlined a, a rally for racial injustice and mm-hmm. I've done a book group for The Color of Compromise. And I've spoken on very different levels about racism. And in a way, I haven't necessarily had that conversation. I guess I have in one way or or another with my children, but then watching my daughter decide in the seventh grade due to police brutality, I will no longer be standing for the national anthem or the pledge on her own without me, us having a conversation. She's just like, mom, until this country is united for everybody, I'm not doing it. Mm. That was so powerful, so powerful. In fact, that when they got to this new school, they created a policy to enforce that my daughter's, my daughter and my son stand and they had to take it all the way up to the board to where it's like, we're not going to fight you guys on it. Just do your thing, whatever it is. Well, that was a joy to see my daughter ask her teacher. She, they had a conversation because of course she had to talk to the president of the school and then they came home, you know, cause we're like talking them through, you know, different angles, but she said to the president of her school, okay, Mr. V, I can see in the Bible things about certain sins. She said, but you show me in the Bible where it's a sin for me to be a black teen. Show me. Wow. You know, and it's like, that came from my baby girl. Like, (laughs) that's powerful, you know? Um, 
even as I'm seeing her go into, okay, London, how do you feel about yourself? You know, I told you, I asked her that question and just seeing her embrace her beauty. Well, I, I feel like that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, pushing her into new things, you know, and trying to make sure that she feels confident to go into, she's running track and, you know, just she can sing and trying to push her into, you know, hey, embrace, don't be afraid. Well, that's a beauty. Mm -hmm. Watching her grow into herself is really a joy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel that. I feel that what you're saying, seeing our kids, my younger son did a was not happy with what little his school did for Black History Month. So he wrote his own speech and delivered it in front of the whole school. And so I, I hear you. What you're saying is like when we see our kids um, using their voice to bring change, it is powerful. Yes, it yeah. really is. Yeah. Well, Pastor Jen, it has been an absolute pleasure having you. We need to get lunch because I feel like I could talk to you about five more hours. <laughs> no, I would love that. Seriously, hit me up. We'll make it happen. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on here today so much. Oh, yes, absolutely. My pleasure, my joy, and my honor to have you. And I want our listeners to know that you should go out and pick up a copy of 100 Facts Every Black Youth Should Know, found on Amazon.com. This is Nicole Doily. Special thanks to Dan Parker for producing this episode of Let's Talk. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.